Welcome to Mentor Text for Munchkins. I'm Kelly, a mom, educator, and children's book fan. Mentor Text for Munchkins episodes are packed with mentor text mini lesson ideas, inspirational author biographies, tips and strategies you can take back to your students all while you enjoy your run or commute. Because hey, there's never enough time in the day. You can enjoy these free resources that you can turn around and use right away. The mission We are inspiring young readers and writers through engaging books and joyful, authentic lessons. So whether you're a teacher looking for some ideas for your ELA block, a parent who wants to add a little extra to your nightly read-alouds, or a children's book fan who wants to learn a little bit more about the pages behind their favorite children's books, you've come to the right place. I'm outside today on a beautiful spring morning, starting my day with the morning chorus of backyard birds that are around me. In this episode, I have the amazing opportunity to talk to Heidi E. Weiss Temple about the backyard chorus and many other wonderful ways to connect young children to her picture books and the world of birds around them. Heidi E. Weiss Temple is an accomplished children's book author who creates these amazing read over and over again picture books that describe and identify the birds that live in so many habitats across the country for our youngest readers and writers. Not only that, Heidi is an avid birder and owler who's dedicated her books and work to teaching young children how to learn about the birds around them and how to protect them. In this episode, we discuss how parents and teachers can make those first steps alongside their children to learn about birds with them. We talk about the role of technology, the resources Heidi provides on her website to help teachers and parents get started, and how you can create a bedtime routine using these beautiful books that Heidi has written, or a mentor text study in your classroom to help children engage in the world around them, and learn a little bit more. So why birds? Well, birds are always present. You can hear them, you can see them through all the seasons in all different habitats. So if you're ready to help your students or your children get deep into the pages of some beautiful books, such as the ones that Heidi creates, and help out with some citizen science projects and learn a little bit more about what lives alongside them, then get ready to jump into this episode. I hope you have as much fun listening to it as I had. And I was so excited to reach out to you because I met you years ago in 2018 at the Children's Book Festival in Warwick. We actually live uh, near Warwick. And we were walking through and you were the last table. It was you and your mother. And we got to the end of the table and I was talking to your mom and I was like, I just love the book Al Moon so much. I I used to do... um, literacy work for coaching and it was like the book I kept in my bag all the time because the descriptive language and it's like one quiet moment and it's just like all the senses so then when she pointed to you and she's like that's her I'm like no (laughs) she's like yes this is my daughter and I had never even put the background uh behind it and so it was so cool to meet you and you lovely So the background on that, of course, is that's my mother, Jane Yolen, author Jane Yolen, and her book, Owl Moon. We were figuring it out. It's very close to her 100th book, not 
on the nose, but I've been doing a lot of the counting on because she's just published her 400th book. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Owl Moon won the Caldecott uh, honor in 1988. And that's the most distinguished children's book of the year. So we love that. Um, and nowhere on that book, except on the flap jacket, does it say that the child is a little girl. The child is I, me in the book. So it doesn't gender the child at all. But people who know me know that's how I grew up. And that's a family story. It's not necessarily exactly about me because I have two younger brothers. The little girl in the book has older brothers. And my dad brought all of us out owling. And actually, I am talking to you now from my house, which is on our big farm where Owl Moon took place, like the real stories of Owl Moon took place. And my house is called Owl Cottage. So I'm still really involved in owling. Now, to, to be even further in that, I lo- we all love that that's taught because we know that there are not, the majority of children don't have an enormous backyard with owls in it or a trusted adult to go out with them at night with knowledge and the desire to do stuff like that. So I actually take it really seriously that that is part of my history because even before I was writing about birds, I would go in and talk to kids about birds and about um, about responsibility for for our earth and about keeping your eyes open and the things that you can see when you walk out into nature. And so I almost feel a little bit like an ambassador for owling because it's the most kids, that's their first experience with owling is in the pages of that book. And if you fast forward past that, my dad and I owled for years after I was a child. And it was almost always in the context of the Audubon Christmas bird count which is the longest running citizen science project um, in the world. It started um, on Christmas day in the year 1900 when Frank Chapman, who was the guy who owned a magazine called Bird Lore, which is actually Audubon magazine now, it's shifted over to that. Yeah, (laughs) And, and he was the curator for the bird exhibits in the National History Museum or the the Natural History Museum. I got that one wrong. Um, And he was very dismayed by the the, um, thing that happened every Christmas uh, around that time, which was the sports hunters would go out and they would have a competition. They were called side hunts and they would count birds. But the way they would do it is they would go out and they would shoot the birds. And whoever got the most birds was the winner of the side hunt. And he published in his magazine, let's do something else. Let's go out and look at that. Let's let's count birds, but let's do it with our eyes and our ears. And if you report your numbers to me, I will publish it in my magazine. And on that first year in 1900, so we're talking 122 years ago, um, 27 birders in 25 locations did just that. And if you move forward to today, there's over 80,000 birders still doing that exact same thing. We don't do it on Christmas day anymore. We do it around that time and it's run and collated. All the data is, is taken in by National Audubon. And that data is used for things like what birds are in trouble with climate change. It's done, it's um, what birds need conservation help and all that. And I'm one of the birders. So my connection, and I do just owling these days and I take out my group, we leave at midnight, we go out into the woods, we call owls, 
Last year, we only got four owls, but on our best year, we got 67, we call 67 owls. So it depends on the climate and the state of the roads and all that. But all of these things are connected. And what I love about writing children's books about birds and nature in general, but really for me, birds is my, you know, my real true love, my connection with my dad and my childhood um, is that you were talking when we, we talked a little before about connecting kids with the technology of the of birding and identification. And I want to come in even earlier. You know, this is cradle. I have a book called You Nest Here With Me, which is identifying birds for the tiniest little people. And I have even a younger one coming out in May called Whose Nest Is Best, which is a lift the flap book. And it has, and it's birds and it, it asks the question, um, it asks the kid the question, this, you know, what kind of bird do you think this is? And then you open it and it answers it. Um, and talking about how nests are, are, are built specifically for each different kind of bird. So that's a little bit about my background and why I'm so interested in writing books for kids about birds at all levels. Because, and it's, I take it very seriously because mm-hmm. I think that, getting children to look around them outside and you don't have to have a big backyard and you don't have to be doing something as sort of um, adult uh, adjacent as owling. It could just be walking down the city street. And if you look around, there's always nature. And when a child is connected with nature, that child grows up to be an adult connected with nature. And I think more and more of my books are becoming, um, have some sort of eco-focus. You know, what is it also can we do? Not just look, but what other things can we do? So that's been a a sort of a focus that I'm moving towards um, as well. And I love that introduction. (laughs) No, that's exactly what I was hoping to talk to you about because there's an idea when you look at, at young children that we have to simplify language or we use more generic terms. But I look at my my own boys. I have a, a six-year-old and they can remember every Pokemon known to mankind, tell you if it's a water Pokemon, an earth Pokemon, a fire one. And there was actually a study done in the United Kingdom where they looked at young children starting between the ages of four and eight to see how many wild species they could classify. And as they got older, how that number started to dwindle. They peaked around eight, but all of a sudden their ability to classify imaginary creatures jumps and it starts to decline now in the wild species. So they definitely have that ear for the language and be able and have little kids are natural classifiers. They're trying to fit everything into boxes and figure out what kind of shape this is, what color is this, where does this go? So it's the perfect time to introduce birds and animals and classification. And you do it in such an engaging way in your books. One of the things I love is just looking at the pictures, which is really where kids also get when they want to read it again and again and again. And you Mm -hmm. notice something different uh, each time. I I always tell my students, I've read uh, Goodnight Gorilla. I think Patrick had me read it to him about 50 times. And the things I noticed every time I read amazed me in just one wordless picture book. 
but the details uh, you I have. I impressed the youth 50 times. I think I read that one to Madison <laughs> about 100 times. And she's in law school now. So <laughs> this one's been around for a while. I love that book. D- did you find the people in the window who, who increase in quantity every time someone passes by? Well, again? Yep. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. But your books have that as well. But they're, they're details they can take with them. So like when when you're showing uh the book you you nest here with me it's showing the locations but it's also showing the materials that i got my kafka too <laughs> it's a really good one sizes <laughs> now it's excellent though because they, it's something they can take with them and it changes their schema of what a nest is because most kids when you say what's a nest they picture brown sticks sitting in a set right perfectly angled in between the branches and that's it but it also teaches them then how to look for nests in different spots to care for them as well too so maybe you wouldn't expect to see it on the side of a building or maybe you wouldn't expect to find a nest buried in the grass but it also makes them a little more aware of what else could be around them and to have that happen at such a young age is absolutely incredible and I I can't wait for your new book because anything with a flap is super exciting for kids this this is a novelty book so it's not it's a lift the flap but it's also a chunky board book and the whole page, <laughs> and the whole page oh. it's going to be really fun it's going to be really um you know like a little quiz for kids and and hand touching which i just love but one of the things that that these books especially the two nest books which is funny that i have now two nest books coming out is i think all the time but i think in all writing for children and this is what you were talking about you know kids everything's new mm-hmm. so dog is just as new as sparrow or hawk, right? So sparrow and hawk don't look anything alike. So why can't we explain them in sparrow and hawk? All right. Once you get into sparrows and the different kinds of sparrows, it might be a little bit more confusing, but using those words, you know, kids, when I talk to them about owls, they love to know the different kinds of owls. They don't just want to know it's an owl. Mm -hmm. We talk about screech owls and how they sound. versus a barred owl who goes so you know they there's there's no reason to just be hey owl these are all different kinds of birds and we never talk down to kids even in the youngest books so like uh, in you nest here with me which i'm holding up if you're showing an audio and i'm and i'll just tell you about it if we're doing it in podcast so coots nest low in cattail reeds sparrows nests are full of weeds plus tangled grasses, feathers, seeds. You see, that's not giving the most simple language. That's really giving accurate language. Mm -hmm. And it's all on the page. So a kid can decode that and it's in context. So there's contextualization in it. So we always are are very uh, careful not to talk down to kids. And those words the kids love the words. They want to know what, if they don't know what cattails are, they're going to look at that page. They're going to see the cattails in the larger version of this book, which uh, has back matter. So it actually has a full page. So when I'm talking about two different forms, there's a board book and it ends um, at the end of the text, but in the full size picture book, it has a full page of all sorts of different details so that a kid can dig deeper into it. One of the things, especially with books, which have this wonderful eco or science or STEM uh, backbone to it or, you know, theme to it, 
having that, that supplemental information in the end of the book is really fun. And it's been great to have editors let us do that. And you give action steps too, which is really interesting for even just like a family to read, like at the, at the end of your counting, uh, counting birds book, you have a whole section of resources like, Hey, so do you want to do this? Do you want to get involved? It's, it's, (laughs) that was fun because the Audubon Christmas bird count, um, is, is the long running one, but many different kinds of citizen science projects have, um use it as the model so i was able to not only say hey you can get involved in the audubon christmas bird count but there's also the great backyard bird count and that's run by i believe that one's run by cornell versus audubon they work pretty side by side for a lot of these things but there's also nest watch so you can watch nests and send in the data on your computer um and there's also um different ones as as well and i think i mentioned some of them in there and other ways to get involved. When I write a book, I love to answer two questions, which is why me and why this book? So in the back of Counting Birds, you also see why I was the one who should write this book and how I'm connected to this book. So it even talks about being the little girl in Owl Moon. So that's that's kind of a fun thing. But like you said, things to do outside the book, always things to connect you outside the book. And a little bit when when we locked down for the pandemic, lots of us put together other stuff. I have to say there's also on my YouTube channel, I, I can't believe I say I own a YouTube channel, but it's <laughs> mostly just for this. There's actually five days of, of resources that I put together just to help out um, based you. on counting birds. That So you can look on Heidi E.Y. Stemple if you just look on YouTube. <laughs> And it has, so I do, I do a reading of the book and then I, I have worksheets or not worksheets, but oh, do you even have them? Oh, this is incredible. So teachers love a good guide with a great mentor text with things that we can immediately turn key. And it makes sense because one of the things that's, that's great about teaching is you don't have to be an expert starting out on any topic that you're exploring because you're learning alongside with them. So the children's books, I'm learning as I'm reading each book to them too. Like, oh, okay, look at that. I didn't know about that. So that's, so your resource for teachers, it's, it's empowering because you don't have to start out saying they're going to call my bluff. They're going to know that I don't know how to identify everything or how to start or where do we begin. And it's really, really helpful. And you have principles, which everybody loves a good principle. <laughs> that you can use. Love that. So, so what inspired you to create this for teachers in particular? So what I'm looking at is, I think, do you have the teacher's guide? I have the Counting Birds teacher's guide. And then I have a sheet for the students to start their day one, day two, day three, day four, day five of. Perfect. Okay. So the teacher's guide came from the publishing company. I always try and see if they'll do one. And then sometimes we'll do one on our own if they won't. Um, so that came from there. And the, the day one, day two, day three, those, those, those were my way of jumping in and giving parents at home or, and teachers extra resources at the beginning of COVID. Oh, thank you. So that was just, <laughs> and I think there's so many of us did that. I mean, it was just there. You will not find a children's book author or illustrator who doesn't feel that we're we're on the same team with the educators. So that was our way of trying to do something to help out. And I think it was fun, you know, it was fun and people use it. Everything is on free download 
um, on my website, which is HeidiEYStemple.com. And then you go to books and then in each book, if there's free downloadable stuff, it's all listed right there with links. Um, but it is about getting more, more stuff so that if you have kids that are interested or you're interested in creating a unit, giving, giving more ways out of the book, there's always, when you have back matter, it's always expected that that is your exit from the book to the bigger world, because you don't want to just a book like this, a book with informational um, stuff. You don't want it to stop there. You don't want the learning to stop there. You want to have an exit point. And when you think about it, I was this kid and I meet this kid all the time. The kid who doesn't want to read a story, who wants the, the, the encyclopedia information, who wants the, so often for a kid, it's actually the entrance into a story through the back matter. Um, they'll read the story afterwards, but really they're just looking for that information. So for me, putting that in a book is the most fun part. And I know that there's kids that take it um, out from, from the book outside and the other way around. And it's a nice balance too, because narrative helps create that context that makes ties emotions and connections into it. So you feel like you're walking through the story and experiencing it and you can remember it that way. And then you have the facts and the tangibles right there and other resources to, to go through too. So it's a really nice balance for, as a teacher, I like the balance of the nonfiction, here's the facts and here's what it looks like. And also a narrative to go through with students as well too. So thank you for being so intentional in in, uh, that balance. Yeah. Like I said, we're on a team here. This yeah. is what we, we are. We are all part of the educational process, but it's, it's good. And then, you know, you can move further to um, like fly with me, which is our big, big book. And I actually wrote this one fly with me, a celebration of birds through pictures, poems, and stories, which is a national geographic big book. Um, and I actually wrote this with my mom and both my brothers uh, so it's, it's written, uh, with Jane Yolen and Adam and Jason Stemple and me, and this is a really fun one. Cause it's a book that you can dip into it's 200 pages, but everything it's got, it's got all sorts of stuff in it. So you could actually use this book. If you wanted to talk about birds and conservation or anything across the curriculum, there's poetry about birds. There's facts and little fact tables. Uh, what are they called? Infographics, I think. Yeah. There's stories, there's a song, I think there's songs, there's tales, so there's folklore and all sorts of different things. And some kids wanna come at learning in that way, which mm -hmm. is a dip in and take the parts of it that they want and ignore the others. There's you know, specifics about how big, uh, what you could plant to bring birds to your backyard. Um, and there's, there's a whole section of the state birds. So there's all sorts of little pieces of information, but there's also bigger chunks. There's large, larger interviews with, um, bird rehabilitators and, uh, 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 <laughs> Don Krutzma, who is one of the world's experts on bird song. So things, things like that. So all these different ways that kids can get information about birds at younger and then continuing ages. I mean, I, I, it's, it's important. And it especially, is. It's, and it's equally important for the kids who have the backyard as it is for the kid who lives in the city because the kid in the city will open up his, hers, their eyes and see the birds are there too, where maybe they wouldn't notice before. 
and, and birds are a great entry point for kids to learn about biodiversity in mm. their in their community for a, a couple reasons. One, you can see them, but you can hear them. So there's two senses that you can activate. So if one is missing, you have the other. And I, I always say it's almost like the engagement ring effect. Like once you train your eye or ear to hear something, you can't <laughs> not hear it. So it's it's funny. My kids and I have talked sometimes with people. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many cool birds around here. They're like, I don't I don't hear anything. And it takes like a little while. And I was like, well, we were there too. Like we weren't hearing what was around us until we became more intentional and started to make meaning out of it. Like, oh, okay, that's a blue jay. And that's a, that's a, a greco and that's a cardinal song. So you can start to discern them. And that's where uh, some of the, the programs that are available now bring in those senses. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, you learned to Al from your father, the <laughs> yep. amazing mentor. I mean, that's that's incredible. And you you mentioned it, that you started using more his maps, his notes, his field guides, and that you prefer a field guide to go through. So how have you seen that work change from you being a child learning how to do this to now? So I still have my my hard bird books. I know where they are. I grew up opening them to the right section. So, I mean, I still use, I have a Sibley, I have a, I have a Peterson's. So I, I mean, I have my field guides, my actual field guides, but I also have smaller field guides. Like I have one right now, cause I was just in Maine, excuse me. And I have my, my laminated one that you yes. open up which is just <laughs> the birds of Maine. So I have that tucked into my backpack cause I just had it this weekend and was, was, uh, was using that. And I also use so for bird, for owl calls, I use an app. I have Audubon owls, which I love. So if I'm really like trying to figure some stuff out or I'm practicing calling myself, which I do more than you would think a person should <laughs> owl calling. I didn't even do really good ones for you, but I do a lot of owl calling in the shower. When people sing in the shower, I, I practice my owl calls. Um, I use almost constantly I'm on allaboutbirds.org, which is the Cornell uh, Ornithology Lab website. It is excellent. Um, I was with a friend and she has a bird in a, a book she's writing. And we spent about an hour making sure that where her book is set and the time of year that that bird, which is a migrating bird would be there. So we did a lot of like looking at all the maps online and stuff. So there's lots of sort of triangulating when I'm doing it. I don't, I at myself don't use eBird, which is one of the big things that, that people use now. I do read eBird. I have the app and I read it. I don't report to it. I don't have anything usually all that exciting to report. So that's a way of getting the information out and, and, the funny part is I'm old enough to remember when my dad, when I was a kid on, we have a, a, a phone desk when phones, kids, when phones used to be attached to walls. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember those days very well. I'm with you. Right? Yes, but probably nobody who's reading my books remembers. <laughs> but we had a phone tree, which meant if you saw a, a rare bird, you would go, you'd get home. And you would get on the phone tree and you would call the top person on the phone tree and that that person would call two people 
and those two people would call two people and those two, all four people would call each call two people, or it's probably, you know, more than that. So all the people in your birding community would get the bird, um, the, would be able to know where this rare bird was spotted and if they wanted to go out and see it. And so eBird is like a very fancy phone tree. <laughs> right. And, and so it's doing the same thing. It, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. And this wonderful nature of, of citizen science, which my dad was a big proponent of is people helping others uh, really get the information that they need. Sometimes that's where the bird is, or we have Facebook groups everywhere you are. There's a Facebook group that talks about what birds have been seen, or if you see something you can't identify and you grab a picture of it, put it up and people will help you identify it. So all these tools now that we have mean really there's more opportunity to identify and to learn more about even in the moment because you could see a bird and just look it up on your phone right there instead of having you know go home and look at stuff and and it's made it just so it's it doesn't make birding the actual birding any easier you still have to find that the apps are not bringing the birds to you right right you're still in nature, which is a really um, sort of unplugged thing, but there are all these new technologies that can help you sort of sort through it, which gives some people more opportunity to become more interested in it. So I like that, that sort of, that it's, it's the duality of that. And, and these apps are, are free as well. So the access that it provides to people, wherever you are, whatever your circumstances are, it's accessible to, to all. And that's really helpful, helpful too. And it's, it's nice to use something like that in an education setting, and then they can go home and use it. And it's right there. Like they can make that continuation going through and kids yep. too. So the beauty of nature is too, that you don't, and birds, birds specifically, but all nature as well is that these are these tools that you can use to help appreciate it, but you also don't need it at all. Right. <laughs> so, so, so once you, that's what I, I, even with my own children, I say, okay, so now that, you know, just enjoy it. Like we don't, because uh, one of our favorite things to do is to record the sound mm -hmm. uh, because I have a few kids who are very, very strong with their auditory. So mm -hmm. just listening to it and they play it over and over. And then it's like, okay, and now you can just sit and enjoy it. We don't have to have it with us all the time. You have that little piece of knowledge to, to understand going through. And actually when, when you signed our, our book, our copy of uh, Counting Birds, you put uh, Watch the Skies. And, mm -hmm. and that's one of those things when children have their curiosity peaked, they're gonna, that's the motivator. They're gonna keep going, they're gonna keep going and just taking that time to notice what it is that's happening. And again, your books provide that language, which is incredible uh, to go through too. Now, you, there's a lot of study about like having this, this sense of place and that when children grow up with a sense of place of where they are, that that's something that later on leads to a life of wanting to be a concert, even if you're not a conservationist doing those citizen science projects or wanting to make some changes going through. Uh, being a good human being in your environment. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So, so how you started talking about when we first came on about uh, your farm and there, so how did that sense of place and knowing what's around it lead you uh, on your path? 
goodness. Well, I am lucky enough to have been raised by a professor, my dad, and a writer, my mom. So our summers, we traveled and they were very purposeful about that. That, I mean, my dad left sort of IBM and computers to teach. He wanted to be able to travel. He wanted to be able to be out in the natural world and have sort of that flexibility. So my sense of place, I grew up on the farm where I live now. I didn't stay here. I left for 18 years and then I came back um, actually to take care of my dad later. Um, but my, I'm, I'm so tied to this area. I'm in the Connecticut River Valley. So we're very low. It's a farming area. We're right on the Connecticut River. My, my farm is not on the Connecticut River. I'm a quarter mile from it. But so it's this sort of lush land with lots of raptors because they, they you know, they love farmland and, and river area because it's really great hunting. Um, eagles tend to be near, near rivers, but I'm very tied to it because of how I grew up, but I was never only here. We would, um, we would go to the Pimajawasset River, which is north of us, and just spend time there. My dad and I would run over to the coast and go to Plum Island and look at shorebirds. We took a trip out west where we hiked in the in the desert. I almost stepped on a tarantula in sandals <laughs> because this was the 70s. And um, <laughs> we didn't, almost did, oh, almost not. Um, but because we were looking at different types of birds. So we really moved around all over the place looking for different kinds of birds. And that you cannot help but have that be part of who you are. My dad died 16 years ago and I really stopped birding after that because it was a little hard for me. I, I, I never stopped owling. I always owled because it was it, at first to honor him and, and then because it became part of who I really was. But all that information that he, that I learned, I don't wanna say he, made me learn that 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 we learned with him was all inside my head and this is what i found really fascinating i was walking years later so maybe 8 years ago and i hadn't been birding in a while because i just i birded with my dad i loved birding with my dad um and i was walking on a jetty on the cape so out oh, into the water and there, a jetty is a, if, if the kids listening don't know, a jetty is a, is a bunch of rocks put together that sort of sticks out into the water. And I'm walking with a friend and suddenly three birds fly up. And I said, out of the rocks. And I said, ready, turnstone. <laughs> and I thought, I have no idea why I just said that, <laughs> but probably maybe that's because that was the bird. That was in my head. I knew that. That I learned as a child and it was still there with me. And what I realized was even though I wasn't birding, no matter where I was, everybody else knew I was birding. So I was driving down, <laughs> I was driving this weekend and I was in one car and my friend was in the other car because we were heading towards Maine and we were talking on the phone because we were both going to the same place, but we were talking about books. We were talking about writing and we're driving. And I said, oh, look to the left. There's a hawk on the, on the thing. You know, I'm just, they're just in my sight because I am trained mm -hmm. to see them. I always see them. And that's what I hope for kids. You know, if you have your eyes open to them, 
that information is always there, no matter what you do with it in the interim. Ruddy turnstone isn't something that I was thinking about every day. It is probably been <laughs> so, so much years. Since <laughs> I it is. It's muscle memory. It's it's like you're saying. You take those little pit bits of um, of the auditory sound, and and it's and you and it stays with you. It's like smells. Have you ever smelled something, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're brought right back? The sound can do that too. And for me, a lot of that is going back to what you were talking about, being rooted to this particular, this area, but also many areas. I haven't been out to Arizona in a million years now, but I think if I went out, I would still have that almost stepping on a tarantula feeling and the birds that I saw there, which I wouldn't think about necessarily all the time. But now that I'm talking about it, I have that memory of seeing a roadrunner for the first time or cuckoo for the first time. And, and they're all connected to who I am and they're all inside me, even when I'm not super conscious of it, which is, it's a really wonderful thing to have in your brain. And I think I don't realize that I see birds all the time as much as other people are amused by the fact that I do. I'm <laughs> just having a conversation like, oh, Blue Jay. <laughs> yeah, I understand it all the time. I'm the queen of squirrel as I'm trying to talk to somebody. <laughs> yeah, and just my squirrel is bird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you take a little bit of everything. And uh, the important thing for kids even to, besides appreciating it and getting to see, it, it also nature has that way of even from a social emotional perspective of just like chilling you out, making you feel like everything's running around you smoothly. But it's also a way for when they hear scary things about the environment and what's happening and animals that are in trouble, it can feel almost like paralyzing. Like, okay, how do I take care of something that's happening so far away? Or what do I do about something that feels so big? But when you start with your backyard of just like noticing, okay, so what are the things that live around you? What's normally here? What's suddenly not here as much? And they start to grow up with that long-term knowledge of noticing patterns and actions. Like even with my own kids, I tell them we, we live on a lake. And I said, you can tell the quality of our lake by who's hanging out here. So we have bald eagles for the first time. We have nesting bald eagles two years in a row. And I'm like, that's a really good sign. Oh, I love them. I'm obsessed. They're right by my house. And I said, that's an incredible sign of what's going on here too. That means that this is a really good environment. We had no hooded mergansers that I remember for the last two summers that I've seen. And we're on the water all the time. We have a huge flock of hooded mergansers on our, on our, oh, I'm obsessed They're with them. They're so pretty. <laughs> They're amazing. And they dive. They, my kids call them the lake penguins because from far away, that's kind of look like floating around. But I say they have, yeah, I love it. I'm like, I think we need a shirt and make them our mascot and we're all good. But I said, well, they're a sign that the water must be still clean enough because they need to see underwater. So when you, when you go first with, you can identify them, then you understand what they need. Then you can start to see when things pivot. And then you're going to be the person who says something. You're going to be like, wait a second. And even going, uh, Erin Brockovich, I listened to her on a podcast Mm -hmm. describing with the nature guys, how one of the reasons she was able to even spearhead her whole mission was she used to play in the water all the time with as a kid. So she started to notice when the water in her streams and brooks, right. And if you don't have that background knowledge of what it's supposed to be or what it's been, you don't notice changes for the good or for the negative to go through. 
Well, and that's one of the things that the Audubon Christmas bird count is very important with because it looks, it's a snapshot of what's happening at the same time every year. And of course, everything is in flux anyway. It doesn't mean if suddenly this right. year you don't have any black ducks, that black ducks are in trouble, but- it Could be something else happening. But you look at a trend and then you can tell that there's something wrong. One thing that kids can do too beyond their backyard is when you start to learn and open up to what the things that humans do to the habitats. Um, my big thing right now is stop with the rodent decide. We cannot poison mice and, and rats because that goes out into the environment and we kill more uh, owls that way because if you poison a mouse because you don't want to deal with it in the house, it then goes outside and the owl eats the, the, the rodent aside, the poison. And so this is my big campaign right now is about that. But it's the easy solution for humans. And I think that little people, our, our children are the exact people to have this information mm -hmm. because they're the ones who are going to educate the, the consumers. They're not the consumers of rat poison. Um, but they are certainly, if they know it, it's something that they can, I'm just writing about this right now. So I'm, I'm very yeah. passionate about it. But um, another one is the cerulean warblers. Now, no children are in charge of that. And I'm hoping I'm getting the right bird. I could be getting beautiful. <laughs> and they they uh, winter over in South America in the places where we grow coffee. In, in South America and they are they've lost all their habitat to that and there are certain coffee companies who are creating mm -hmm. shape tobacco that has a cover that that creates a habitat for them can we fix this problem from you know Ohio or Massachusetts no but our children when they know it can educate consumers. And I, I find that sort of like an interesting balance, like, like how, how can kids be involved in ways when it's something that is truly out of their control, like coffee crops in South America is not something a, a second grader is capable of doing something about. But knowing these things, finding out about these things, the ways that we are affecting birds as humans, they are in charge of information now, which I think is, which is fascinating. And if you care about birds on a small level in your backyard, you can see a bigger picture and you can help educate the people who may not know about it. Because I mean, I never read a book. I'm in my fifties. I never read a book about cerulean warblers, which also weren't in trouble when I was at that age, it was a different type of um, farming. But this information is great to have and how do we get it out? What is a project that kids can do about it? And sometimes education is the project that you can do about it. There are coffees you can purchase that, that are, are directly related to the conservation of the birds that are in trouble because of that, that area. How can children be part of that, that, um, that solution? So I'm, fasc suit. I'm yeah. sort of fascinated by that kind of citizen science and act advocacy as well. Because there's so many of these citizen scientists that can really make a huge impact. The Bronx Zoo actually just uh, changed over to shade grown coffee 
because of that. Yep. For uh, there was actually a dragonfly student who made a trip out to uh, South America and saw what was happening and came back and talked to the zoo. It was one person coming in and, and sharing that message, and then it went from there too. So that's what you can find at our at our zoos now. <laughs> you go through. And I love that. That is actually the same message from Counting Birds, which was the story about Frank Chapman. Now he had a good platform which children don't necessarily have the same kind of platform. He had his own magazine, but he had one small idea and he convinced 27 people. And that has grown to 80,000 plus people. So no idea is too small. No voice is too small to make a change, to make a big change, to make a small change. A bunch of small changes make a big change. So that is is one of sort of my missions in the, the, the books. I'm not asking people to do things by writing my books. I'm not saying, uh, you know, whose nest is best, which is the the new one coming out in in May, is not a call to action. But it is is showing the youngest readers or listeners in that case, because they won't be reading yet, um, to open their eyes, to watch the skies, to look at birds, to know that they are part of the environment you know, um, cats should be inside. Let's hear there's another one, right? All these different things that we, we, we need to protect species that, that can't protect themselves in the same way or that we're doing damage to. And how, what's the first step? Falling in love with them. And that happens in a book. And then you notice, and then you act. It goes through that. And I love you, you say in Counting Birds, there's a line I absolutely love in it where you say um, about how all the citizen science helps the data, but then you say, but on that night, the stories are what matter. So coming from there, we we know you as a, as a child, a glimpse of your story now, Moon, but do you have a favorite story from, from owling or birding that, that you come back to? I do. And you, you mean like one that I've, that I have experienced myself your your own personal all right so there's there's two one is with my dad um my dad I my dad when I first moved back home he would somebody else would take first shift out like it's long we get up at midnight and we we bird till 7 30 in the morning which is when the sun comes up and the owls stop calling but then you bird until about 4 35 p.m so it's a long 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 stretch His friend Jan would take first shift and then he'd come, I'd go to sleep and he'd come pick me up at about 2.30 in the morning. Um, And so we'd go out. And at that point, I was always cold. I'm good now. I'm older. I'm I'm warm. (laughs) Elements all over my, my, in my clothing, like foot things. and, And I put, I put the things that you're supposed to warm a hurt back. I put that on my legs. You know, we have plug-in gloves. I, I, I am, I'm feeling on that. I'm not a fan <laughs> naturally. So, so for me, he was always so excited. And I, back then we didn't have iPhones or I have an iPod, a little tiny iPod that only has owl calls on it. And those are pretty good. And you can put them inside your scarf but he used a tape recorder and the batteries, regular batteries freeze and degrade when it's cold. So I would knit him and sewn, I'd sewn him cool, cozy things so that he could put it in. And it was, I mean, he would love this technology that we have now. 
But one of my favorite moments was I was in the car because I was so cold and it was probably three o'clock in the morning. And we came to a place where I still owl today. It's called the underwater bridge. I won't even go into why it's called that, but it's actually a bridge. that is. Sometimes <laughs> There's a underwater. story behind that. name. <laughs> sometimes it's underwater. Sometimes it's a bridge. Um, and I just remember sitting in the car and he motioned me to come out, come out, come out. And this was early when I first came back. So it was one of my first couple owl counts with him back as an adult. And I walked out and the screech owls were calling. And I was just like, oh, right. This is why we do this. This is amazing. So I'm always, my dad's always there with me, always when I'm out there. But the best night that I ever had, I, I, I'd started putting together a group and I, I'd come up with a really good group. I have a photographer. I have um, a college professor who teaches children's literature. I have um, a, a elementary science teacher. I have a bug guy. So I have this great group and we're, we've got it sort of to this and a, and a high school um, teacher. So we've got it sort of to this, this core group and we were having a really good night and we had, we, we were hearing lots of owls. And the moment I realized that we were really having a good night, we we're standing out on a field. It was a snowy field. We had two screech owls, no, three screech owls calling at us from a tree line on the right side. About a mile to the back of us, we could hear uh, on, at the great pond, because I knew where I was standing. Um, there was a pair of great horned owls calling and we're all standing in the middle of the field looking up and there's a meteor shower. Oh man. And at those moments, I just thank my dad. I'm like, I know you're here with me. It's just absolutely wonderful. And the, the teacher, the elementary school teacher, who was an amazing birder, if he was standing in the woods and calling an owl, I would think he was an actual owl. Um, he turned to me and he said, I'm standing here with the little girl from Owl Moon. And I just realized I'm the old guy. He said, we're the Owl Moon gang. So from then on OMG. that year, we were the OMG. So that's my, my crew that we, that we bird with. It's a beautiful and, story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when you finish, we always have, and we haven't had it because of the pandemic. So it's, we, I've, we've all been missing it very much is at the end of the day, what I talked about in the book and here, if I can find the, um, okay. So the, the line in the book that you were just talking about, um, is from the real feeling that we have in our count group. And I hear from lots of other count circles who do the same thing. We have a big potluck dinner. So we go to the potluck dinner and we all talk about everything that's happened. And we then go around in a circle and we call out our numbers. So they go bird by bird. So American Robin, and then we go by, by I'm, I'm, um, I think I'm, I, my area is 27. So I call out how many it is. And if you have some, a really good number or a really rare bird, that's very exciting. You say, I'd like to wait till the end. So on that <laughs> first year, when we had all those owls, we had 67 owls 
that we called oh. down. So I kept saying, I'd like to wait till the end. So everybody was getting excited because they knew I had a good number and it's, so it's very exciting and everybody's so supportive. And I have a competition going on with Dan Zomack, who's across the river from me, who got more owls than me this year. Oh, Dan Zomack. So that is, that is what the, the, um, the, the part of this book, what that is about. So the, I'm going to read that page. I love that. Um, I'll actually read the, the, it's two pages. It's a full page spread. So it's, and this is from Counting Birds. It says, at the end of the day, the birders collect their notes and add their numbers. Later, the National Audubon Society will compile all the data and learn many things. How climate change affects birds, bird populations, which species are in trouble, which area needs conservation help. The birders know this is important for science. But that night, what is really important are their stories. Who found the most owls? Which rare birds were spotted? What records were broken? The Audubon Christmas Bird Count has become the longest running citizen science project and wildlife census in the world. Everyone wins. The birds, the birders, science. And that really hits home how it starts. You have a personal reward. It goes into your community. It goes into the bigger picture. So you can create that ripple. And thank you so much for sharing that story because those are the little jewels that when you're reading a book to a class or to a group of, of scouts that you can tell them, hold up, this is what's behind this part right here. Here's what you get to picture. And it just elevates and makes it feel close to home and so so real. So thank you so much for for sharing that. And if why there's me? why that's why me, why this story? It, it, and it, right and it, it shows like also that feel of community that can come around these kinds of hobbies. You don't have to do it all by yourself. You don't have to, there's people you right. can reach out to and it becomes a, a social part. So if there's any, any teachers or parents who, or even kids on their own who want to just start and they're brand new, they're overwhelmed by like, okay, I know this is a bird that has brown feathers and this bird's big. Where, what would be your advice or some tips for those just starting out? I have two things. Crow, not crow. That's the first ah. thing. Crow, not crow is a book that my brother, Adam Stemple and my mom, Jane Yolen wrote. And it is, it is a book about the way a father taught his daughter to, to, to bird. You start with the easy thing. Is this a crow or not a crow? <laughs> so that is a way to start, right? Classification, right? Pick, pick your five birds that you that you know. A robin, a blue jay, a crow, a, a Canada goose, and a starling. Go out and see if you can find those. There's another, so the, I, 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 you know, I think that's a really easy way to start, like to really just focus in on what you're seeing and see if you can, if some of them are things that you can see. There's also a really good tool um, for identification, which is in uh, allaboutbirds.org, Cornell's site, mm -hmm. where you can go in and you tell it where you are and what season it's in and you what size it is and what color it is. And it will give you much fewer options. Oh, it's blue. You're in New England. It's approximately crow size. It's either a blue jay or a or a eastern bluebird. So that that's those sorts of things are helpful because once you get to things like hawks, they're a lot harder to identify. But it's if you can figure fun. out that it's a hawk, 
you're, you're halfway there, right? <laughs> you may not know the difference between a Northern Harrier and a, a, a red-tailed hawk, but it's pretty certain that it's going to be a red-tailed hawk because there are lots of those around and you'll probably only see one Northern Harrier, you know, in your lifetime. So those things are helpful. And that, that tool on that website is very helpful for that sort of thing. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah. But I'm also a fan of a bird book. You know why? Cause you could sit with it. Yeah. You have it in sections. And when you're not outside birding, you can look at ducks, just ducks, go to the duck section and you look at the different ducks. And then when you're looking at them in nature, that, that muscle memory that you have mm -hmm. learned these facts is going to come back. <laughs> you're going to see ready turnstone. <laughs> right. <laughs> One day that's going to be, be you <laughs> in your head. I have to also say there are some really fun sort of board games. I have one that, that is a matching game so that you get that information in while you're playing the, a tangible game. And I have an identification game too, which is sort of fun. So, you know, it asks you to identify it and you get the points if you identify it. So. Do you have a name of a specific game? Because I'm building a shopping list as we're going through. But yeah, and there, there's some, there's some really good identification tools. Um, also, like I said, I have the, the small, I'm looking around because I don't remember, I, I think I. The fold out guides that they Ooh, have it. Yeah. Hold on one second. <laughs> I think it's right here. <laughs> I don't mean to ever do that when you're recording. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> like this, this one is, and it's, it's, um foldingguides.com. So this one is the birds of the New England coast. So I was just on a ferry and in Maine. And so it's only this many birds, right? It's like a lot, but it's, it really is smaller than trying to figure out all the birds. This one on the cover has a gull and oh, probably a ready turnstone and a loon. So it's, it's very specific and you can look and then instead of all the sandpipers in all of America, you have just the ones that are in a region. So those are always really nice. And like I said, I just, I, I have it right here because I had it in my backpack because I was getting on a boat. Oh, that's, that's, and what's excellent is you can take even some of those birds that are local. Like I, I know on Merlin, they have the option where it shows like the five most common in your area to start with. And yep. Uh, one of the things that you can even do is build them into like your routine. So like we always say like eyes on me as a teacher or like listening. So like you could say something like uh, have your eyes like a bald eagle and mm -hmm. keep your body straight like an upland sandpiper and just work it in naturally to those like main routines that you do where you don't have to add another thing. It just kind of goes and connects and it becomes a little yep. more fun yep. going through with it too. And connecting it to where you are is really good right. because, because it does break down the I am not going to see a scrub jay here mm -hmm. as much as I'd like to. I'm definitely never going to see a scrub jay in my yard in Massachusetts. I will see lots of Eastern bluebirds. So already knowing that if I see a bird that is blue and about the same size, those are the two, you know, my choice. Right I will see a blue jay, but I won't see a scrub jay. So tying it to where you are is great because then you really learn, learn that small group and then move out from that. And it, and it feels attainable. You build those baby steps like, oh, okay, now I know these, now I can go a little bit wider and go from there. That's, that's excellent advice. And stay away from the ones that are going to make you frustrated. <laughs> I cannot identify sparrows. I can't. No, not, and they're fast. 
they're small. <laughs> they blend they in all, with their They all look alike and their names don't work. <laughs> their names don't make any sense. That's not, it's not a thing. So I just enjoy sparrows. I don't try and identify. Them. There are a couple of them I can identify, but there's 50 of them that live around, you know, that we call them LBJs. They're little brown jobbies. That's, that's actually what we call them in my family. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. The only one I can recognize is the uh, song sparrow because it's its song is so beautiful and so pronounced. But after that, I, I've got just those little yeah. little beats. That's it. <laughs> no, okay with that. Like that's advanced birding. You don't right. have that, right? <laughs> that's okay. And if you say so, then I'm really taking it to heart that it's okay. So. <laughs> you know, I'm not great at hawks. I They're I fine. have to step back and and go back to my book and figure out what it is. And I have to really, there are certain things when learning to bird, here are my, my big things about learning to bird. If you have binoculars, don't try and look like this. You look at the book, the birds with your eyes and bring the binoculars directly up to your face. That's like a really good like little fact about binocular birding. The other one is know what you're looking for. So when you're looking at a bird and you know that you don't know what it is, have your list of five things. What does it be? What does its beak look like? What is its overall color? Does it, what does it wings look like? The tail, the rump, like all the different things that you might, that might be important. What is the biggest thing that you think about? Cause you're not going to remember exactly what it looks right. like and bring it back in your eyes to look at your book or your identification guide. So know the things that you're looking for, like a little checklist in your brain. So if you see a bird you can't identify, um, you notice those things. It has a crest. Its overall color was blue. It was about the size. Use, use crow. Is it a duck size? Is it a crow size? Is it a hawk size? Is it a sparrow size? Like which size? Because you need to know that. Um, what was it doing? Was it perching? Was it on the ground? Was it flying? That sort of thing. And like, what shape was it? And then you can go like to, to smaller things, like you're saying, categorizing. Did it have a white rump? That's the area right above the tail. Um, or were its feet a funny color? Those sort of things. But get those overall big picture items first, because that's going to be what you're going to need to hold in your memory to get back to an identification guide. And it makes a great place for sketching, too, to, to take notice of those details. That's Absolutely. excellent. Well, thank you so much. I have so many, I have so many books I'm picking up. I can't wait for Whose Nest is Best, even though Yay. I'm probably going to preview it a few times selfishly before I go and read it with my own. <laughs> okay, I love it. I, can't wait. I don't even have a copy yet, so I cannot wait to hold it. And it's illustrated by, um, is it Gareth? Oh gosh, why can't I remember his last name? He's so amazing. The art is phenomenal i cannot wait i see this is my problem when i don't have it in my hand <laughs> no the previews are, are amazing i was checking it out online where you can do some of the sneak peeks uh going through so and i think so wonderful. you you talk about how harry chapman he it's because he cared and you care and you've created this mass ripple that now between four books but geared to the youngest population which makes it even more special because these are the readers who are reading alongside their teacher. They're reading next to their parent. So their parents, their families, their teachers are all learning at the same time as them. 
uh, it's it's really special. And you brought Owling just through your experiences to the to the forefront. And I I hear you're taking writers out with you in groups too. So thank you for caring and for for bringing your two worlds together to create these amazing stories that that are timeless. I mean, we're talking about books that can be read in any time and will always matter. So thank you so much. I I've I've learned a lot today. I'm excited to to take your tips to to heart and. And, uh, and pass this on. <laughs> I can't wait to hear more stories about kids and birds because that is my favorite thing. Just everybody remember, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be the best. You just have to love it. Like, and you just appreciate whatever level you're on because birds don't need you to identify them to the nth degree. You don't need to see the most rare birds. I mean, I talk about blue jays a lot because I think they're really overlooked. They're kind of, they're bullies. They're loud. <laughs> and they're we, because we see them all the time. We don't realize how beautiful they and are. You can hear a blue jay from really far away because they oh, are yeah. loud and in charge. <laughs> I love it. Let me tell you one more thing because you love, and you love the bird sound so much and you may know this already, but maybe, maybe this is I a, may not. <laughs> One of my favorite things, and I love to talk about this in the spring, is, is I'm in New England, so we have a really hard winter, and then come spring, so it's just started. When the sun starts coming up, the birds start calling in the mornings. They don't really do that in the winter, and it has a, it has a term. It's called the dawn chorus. Oh, so nice. we are just starting here in New England, and I don't know necessarily how it is all over the place, but we're just starting the season of the Dawn Chorus, which is just such a beautiful time. I'm now waking to the birds singing again, and, and it really feels, you know, you know that baby birds are coming, and it's just really lovely. So listen in the mornings when everybody's getting ready for school or whatever for the Dawn Chorus. It, it, I've started to hear it as I not, I was leaving when it was dark to go to yep. work and I didn't hear anything. And now it's getting lighter. So just as I'm getting to my car, you start to hear like that ripple of everything waking up. And yep. I had no idea there was a term. And that is so beautiful that I'm taking that with me. I love it. I <laughs> like that. It brings a, some poetry to it as you're, as you're experiencing it. Oh, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate this. This was, this was a lot of fun. And uh, I, I can't, I don't think you're done. I can't wait to, <laughs> to keep, you have quite a collection of books that you're building that between the poetry, short stories and books that you're publishing yep. and going for it. So I, I think you have a lot of great stories to tell and I'm enjoying listening to them. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, look for Wren's Nest coming next year about a little girl who watches uh, Phoebe's uh, in, in the nest and fledging. And, and where would you send people to get more information about some of the things that you spoke about today for, for your own resources? We have your YouTube channel. We have your, your website. <laughs> My website. You can also follow me on social media if you're on Facebook, even teachers. I do have, although because of the pandemic, I don't, it's not as updated. I have a Facebook page called Owl Count. Um, and I'm also on Facebook as Heidi Stemple and Heidi E.Y. Stemple, but I don't love the professional page. I'm on Instagram, but less about birds um, at Heidi EYS and Twitter at the same. Um, but there is a bunch of fun information, especially for teachers and students on the OWL count page, including some little video clips 
uh, of, of owls we've seen on the count. And I, I link some stuff in there. So those are, those are always fun to see. Um, and then again, for the, the different um, teacher's guides and stuff like that, you can look on my website, which is HeidiEYStemple.com. Oh, thank you. And, and one last question, because my children made me promise to, to ask. They want to know, <laughs> what's your favorite owl and your favorite bird that's not an owl? My favorite owl, 100%, um, no questions asked, is an eastern screech owl. I love both the gray and red face. I think of them as brunettes and redheads. And one of the reasons is because there are so many of them here. We, that's, that's my territory, my, my neighborhood, so to speak. Um, because it's just the right type of um, habitat for them. Uh, and picking another favorite bird is really hard. Oh my gosh, I love puffins beyond. Oh, they're so I've, cute. I've seen them both in, in, um, in Scotland, in the nesting in the cliffs in Scotland, but also in, the, um, uh, in Maine, where they nest up in Maine. And what I think I love the absolute most about them is when they fly, they, they sort of twirl their tail around a little bit and they have this funny little thing they do that's kind of like a little old man sort of, <laughs> and a clown at the same time. I mean, they're very funny. So I have- Not as graceful. <laughs> they have wonderful grace and they're amazing, <laughs> but they also have this sort of funny affect to them. But also, you know, uh, there's nothing in this world that's more stunningly beautiful than seeing um, a pileated woodpecker. So most amazing things. Or I went, I was lucky enough to go to the Galapagos Islands. And if you've ever seen a blue-footed booby, you can never love a bird as much as that because they are just absolutely ridiculous. And they are little puffed up little guys who show their feet off in these big silly movements to attract a, a female uh, blue-footed booby. I mean, they're hilarious. I mean, there are just so many good, good birds or who doesn't love a wild turkey? Because when you look at a wild oh turkey, my gosh. you know <laughs> that dinosaurs were birds because they look- And exactly they have personality. Like they have a lot of personality. <laughs> yeah, and they look like a dinosaur. So, I mean, I- the, how could I choose? I can go on for days and, you know, ruddy turnstones. So <laughs> we, we had a wild turkey that was becoming famous and we were, our community was going to name him because he would, he or she would stand. We have only two traffic lights and there's <laughs> one traffic light at the top of the mountain. He was standing in the center of the intersection for like a week and a half straight, just standing there and wouldn't move no matter how all the cars. And I'm, we were hysterical. Like when people would come out and try and move nothing for like a week and a half. And then one day just left, but we were like, Oh boy, not scared of anything. <laughs> not at all. And you know, like loons, they're amazing. I dress almost entirely black and white. So he's sort of my, my spirit bird bird <laughs> your muse <laughs> i love them and they're very tough they're very and very good parents too like they, they the babies ride on their back i mean like i could go on forever turns i love watching turns diving they're amazing they just like they go and then they just shut down and go straight into the water they're it, so there's so many birds that are just so fascinating and and the reason why it's hard to pick one is because maybe like ask me which is my favorite type of turn or my favorite type? Cause there's so many different kinds. It's right. Right. It's, it's not, you know, there, 
bird is such a big category. So everybody will find something absolutely wonderful to love about them. And that's a good takeaway too. There's a bird for everyone. Like you're going to connect with the traits and the personality and the behaviors of, of one you'll find, find your bird. That could be a. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much. I, I, I appreciate this. And I, I'm, like I said, I'm going to share this with my, my own children. And I hope that uh, people who work with kids feel that they've got the tools to, to just start, just start, start small, and you can build your knowledge alongside them at the same time, just like uh, you had with your father starting with you and, and just keeps going. It's a, it's a great way to work with children and train them up to be noticers as they, they go through life. Uh, and I can- love it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, will you leave a review to help others find this podcast? Hey, you can double dip and use it as an opinion writing exemplar. Check out the Mentor Text for Munchkins Teachers Pay Teachers store for more free resources to use at home and in the classroom. And remember, always keep a book by your side and a story in your heart.